Well, Randy, uh, in the last two weeks, has preached on Ephesians 4, 1 through 16, on how to walk in unity with the body. And he asked this really powerful question. Can we actually see that Jesus, see the unity that Jesus promised us in John 17? And it just really cut me to the heart because we've seen so many churches being broken up by schism, by conflict, by inner turmoil, by moral failures, so many things. Um, But it just gave me really a breath of fresh hope um, as Randy gave some clear directives to ask for a taste of the surpassing love of Christ, to ask for the body um, of how we're living out the unity of the Spirit in chapter 4, verse 2, and then just getting a vision of the unity of the Father of the Spirit. Ultimately, because God is one, and because it says in Ephesians 4, 6 that we are united under one Christ overall, that unity is difficult, but it is possible. Because Christ is over his church. It was his idea. Christ died for it, and he's in it. Amen? And in that, last week, if he is that exalted Lord um, who gives gifts to men, Jesus has given the body unique gifts to build up the body of Christ in the full unity and the full maturity in Christ. And it's just really given me a renewed um, just thankfulness and drive and passion just to pray, God, protect our body's unity and to seek the Lord's protection against his disunity. So thank you. Um, So far in Ephesians, as me, uh, Jake, and Randy have been laying out, um, if you look to the screen, uh, what we see is kind of the uh, general overview of what Ephesians looks like. Chapters one through three talks about our new identity in Christ, that we're a new creation. Um, and in chapters four through six, that Paul exhorts them now, now that they are children of the living God, to live like it's absolutely true in community. And so as we continue this, in Ephesians, we see this is nothing new. It's actually a continuation of everything in Ephesians 4, um, chapter 1, that Paul had exhorted them, now as a prisoner of Christ Jesus, I exhort you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've called. Now Paul shifts from unity to purity. And now he's shifting from our doctrine of who we are, of how righteous and deeply loved we are in Christ. It should result in doxology. It should result in righteous living and loving um, of the people of Christ. And as you take a look in Ephesians 4, 5 through 6, 4, 5, and 6, um, you're going to see just a repetition of this one word, uh, to, to walk. And it really is just a, a good reminder of living like it's true. Uh, is this this imperative of that we need to walk in it. If we've been called the sons of the living God, we've been loved by God with a surpassing love that goes far beyond knowledge, then live in it. And see, with this imperative walk is repeated five times in the next um, two chapters. Chapter 4, verse 1, I already talked about that. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. 417, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Uh, Chapter 5, verses 1 through 2, which Jake will get into next week. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us. And then jump over to verse 8 and says, to walk as children of light. And then in verse 15, to look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, 
but as wise. And it's going to set us up here for the focal point of Ephesians, which um, Jake had alluded to that in chapter 1 through 3 and how chapter 1 through 3 uh, just formed this chiasm or this central focal point around us being a temple of the Holy Spirit. Chapters 4 through 6 also forms like a chiasm around this key word to walk. Um, so if you take a look, chapter 4, 1 through 16, Paul exhorts them to walk in the unity of the Spirit growing in Christ and love, and that uh, corresponds with the end of Ephesians, chapter 6, 21 through 24, um, that his prayer <clears throat> is peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. In other words, it's saying he's praying that they would receive the fruits of the Spirit's unity, which is incorruptible love. Then we jump into 4, 17 to 32, and then Paul exhorts them to walk in the power and the purity of the Spirit. Um, and then that corresponds with and parallels 6, 10 through 20, which Paul exhorts them to walk in the power of their new life against the wiles of the enemy. And then in chapter 5, 1 through 14, Paul exhorts them to walk in love and light as children of the light. And that parallels 522 to 69, um, where Paul exhorts them and talks them how to walk out this in their relationships, with their walks with their spouses. We're going to talk about marriage, and, and, if, and uh, we're going to talk about our children, if you have them. And then we're going to talk about our work relationships with, uh, I think, most people in this room, uh, except for kids uh, and uh, students, would be able to uh, get into. But yet, the definite focal point is 15 through 21, where it mirrors being a temple of the Holy Spirit, but how do we walk? It's not in drunken stupor or drunkenness of kind of going back and forth and being controlled by the winds and the waves, as Ephesians 4 talks about. But that Paul is saying that the key to unity is the Holy Spirit, that we are called to maintain the spirit of unity. And if he is in us, then let's be filled with him and not be filled with sin. The spirit is the source of our unity and it should just have a definite 180 degree shift in your life. It should just be um, just like when I was in Galveston last week, uh, we spent some time uh, with our kids and uh, on a beach house and just a walk over to the beach. And uh, my wife kept on repeating, do not let Micah go into the water without his muscles. Y'all know what his muscles are, his little, you know, <laughs> inflatable, big, fat muscle things that makes him look buff. And I was like, you know, I was kind of doing the dad thing. I was like, no, it'd, it'd be good. He'd be fine and all that stuff. Um, and I literally sat in the water. It was like maybe less than knee deep. And um, I sit with him. And then all of a sudden, I'm just kind of just enjoying the waves, enjoying just the, uh, the beauty of that moment. And then all of a sudden, bam, just a wave just hits me, you know, just pushes me back all the way and knocks Micah out. And then he falls backwards. And he comes up sputtering up water and crying. And he's just like... I just felt like the worst dad in the world. Um, like, what are you doing? <laughs> you don't realize the force of the waves. And that's kind of what it is here. You may have realized that, and maybe I've come to grips with God. Maybe a long time ago it was a 180. But maybe in your life, 
you're being backslid into the world and backslid into your old ways. And you may not see that you're really changing at all. It may seem like you're not even moving anywhere in your spiritual life. And perhaps it just, you're just, your life doesn't look like a Christ follower at all. Maybe you are more defined by shame or guilt or struggle or sin because of the sins of your past. Or maybe you just are just really struggling and it's like five steps forward, but then it's like 10 steps back and you're just struggling to move forward and finding any purpose of moving forward in your spiritual walk with the Lord. Maybe you've just had the same heart issue again and again of being a, um, somebody who fears man and you know you need to tell the truth to somebody, but you've hid behind a mask because you don't want to hurt them. And you just stay in your fear and you're living in your fear. And if this is you, I just want to say I'm, I empathize. I've been there and I'm always there every day. I'm wondering whether I'm really changing at all. I'm just really praying and asking God, am I really living out the new life that you've promised me? I mean, it's a struggle. And I don't know about you, I struggle with that a lot. And that's why I love the main verb here. The word here is to walk, not to run, although that's also part of Scripture. That's a scriptural reference, but to walk, meaning you're moving, you're going, and you're being conformed to Christ, even though you don't feel it. And that's Paul's precise purpose, to draw a sharp line in the sand, to say, hey, this is who you are, where you were before, but now I'm calling you. I've redeemed you, I've called you, and I simply called you to walk in light of who Christ has made you to be. And these look like really small steps, but that's just where we are. We're right there in the middle of this already not yet where we are going toward Christ-likeness, but we're not there yet. And sanctification is just painfully, painfully slow. You may feel the hurt of somebody who's backslid into their own lives of sin, cultures of sin, or maybe somebody who's just turned back and renounced Jesus. And there's been people that my heart still breaks because they have stepped back. But it just reminds us that we live in this messy world. We live in a time where sin and brokenness um, kind of rule the day, and yet we walk out this new identity imperfectly, slowly, but God is changing us so that we're becoming more like Christ. And he's called us to live out. It's about, it talks about you gotta make an old break with your life, with your old life. And to live, you live, you are called to live a brand new life in Christ. So let's take a look, at, shall we, in verses 17 through 24. And we're going to talk about the break from our old life. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Here Paul basically says with the utmost solemnity, this is not my command. This is Jesus' command. It's as if the Lord himself is talking. And the New Living Translation states verse 17 this way. With the Lord's authority, I say this. 
Live no longer as the Gentiles do, for they are hopelessly confused. Paul is so clear that your old life, it's led to death and nothing but death. Their old life was darkened in their understanding. Your old life, uh, before you turned to Jesus, your old life had no spiritual vision to discern the things of God. It's not saying that you didn't have any capacity to think or reason or um, to think, but they just lacked spiritual depth of perception. They were unable to see the bigger divine purpose or as Paul puts it, that they were alienated from the life of God. Paul says that they were living a life of ignorance. This is due to the hardness of heart, which this word um, is translated porosis, which comes and, and really talks about a petrified, stony um, condition. Just kind of uh, speaks of uh, some of our plants right now because they are just completely hardened and dead um, because of the heat wave. But this is not just a passive hardness. This is an aggressive pushback against the heart of God. When you were in your old life, you were hardened. You were callous to the things of God. And instead, your mind was only bent on and greedy to please yourselves. And that led into a vicious cycle, a vicious cycle of, um, for them, riotous and excessive living. And for maybe probably many of us, a life of just pleasure of living for ourselves. And yet, this was a never-ending cycle because this always led them to insatiable lust for more. And Paul is basically calling them out. Paul says, this is not how you have learned Christ. It's as if I called out to Matt Lee and I just called him right out there and said, break from your old life right now. Break from your life of sin no, you cannot have my van, even though you want my van. Um, sorry, that's an inside joke. We have the same van. <laughs> we have the same Toyota Sienna. But it's as if I was calling him out, right? Right now, and I called him out, and I just said, hey, look, I'm calling you out because of your sin. And you might think, Paul, why are you so, like, messed up? <laughs> why are you calling people out? Well, remember, these are brand new Christians. They were mainly Gentiles who came into this world from a a land and world of Roman gods and goddesses that were violent and sexually perverse. And so that culture just permeated all their culture. Zeus, right? He presided over a pantheon, a pantheon of sexually immoral and bloodthirsty deities. Artemis was a fertility figure on public pornographic display. This was a culture that was just mired in sex and sin and violence. And Paul knew this too well, that what they believed about what they needed to live in their lives didn't have anything to do with the change in their life. Listen to Eugene Peterson when he writes, as Paul moves his attention into the daily world of the work and behavior of these Gentile Christians as they live out this resurrection life to the praise of his glory, he is pastorally alert to how easy it would be for them to unconsciously take on this wonderful new gospel, but unthinkably fail to remove the trappings of the old culture. You see, Paul was in tune pastorally. He did that not because he hated them, he loved them. Love you, Matt. Um, He called for a decisive break with the sinful lifestyle of their old life. 
He assumes that they've heard the gospel, they were taught in Christ. And he says, quite frankly, you must confront your old way of life because it is not at all mixed with the new life God's promised. Look at the three verbs in uh, verses 21 through 24. He says, uh, to put off, to be renewed, and to put on the new self seem to be a part of what they were taught at the very beginning when they first trusted Jesus and heard the gospel and gave their life to him. Because as they were taught in Christ, as they, the truth was in Jesus, not that they were not instructed, is that, that they have been instructed. And to become followers of Christ meant that they have been taught to put off their old self, that is corrupt, to be renewed and to be put on the new self. In other words, Paul is not saying that this has yet to happen. This is saying, he's saying this has already happened, right? Paul is saying you're simply called out to live out your new life as it is true. Um, and that's why he uses the, the put on, put off imagery of uh, a new wardrobe. And that's why you never see people dressing up in their graduation gown. Um, <laughs> the next uh, a few days ago, my mom asked me if I want to keep my high school and my college graduation gown. And I said, absolutely not. Um, because you can toss it. Because it's like, I'm not going to show up at a Hope Church worship service in my high school really tacky, bright red. No, no I don't think it was bright blue robe. <laughs> I mean, it's not saying I didn't like my high school years. It didn't say that it wasn't as joyous as it was. It just signified a, a part of my life, a part of my old life that I would never want to relive again. <laughs> um, pimples and all, um, and fights and all that stuff. And in the same way, <laughs> you've made a decisive break with your sinful past, and you're called to live the power of your new life in Christ. And that's where Paul is not content to just give a general, okay, live your new life for Christ, but he gives these concrete steps for living out their new life in Christ. Let's read verses 25 to 32. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Have you ever noticed something? This is not very mind-blowing. This is very ordinary. And in fact, this is just very communal, right? New life is not defined by a decision you made 10 years ago. It's not made by how many times you've read through the Bible. It's not made by uh, when you walk the aisle, when you decided to trust in Christ. Your new life is defined of what you do now in community. It's not just what you do here on Sundays, but also how you live it out in community. And that's what we really are big here at Hope, and we're following King Jesus together into loving God 
and loving others. And we're just really passionate about saying, you know what? I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. We're all kind of messed up. We all have struggles. Let's lift, let's lift each other up and let's not hide behind masks. Let's just work it out in an authentic way and um, know that we have King Jesus that we're following into discipleship. We're walking into that, into loving him, being loved by him first and foremost, and out of that overflow, loving others and then being a light to the world. And so I hope that this is not going through the motions for us, but that this strikingly ordinary would just really strike a tone in you. Number one, Paul gives a whole series of commands, and there's usually a positive and a negative exhortation followed by a reason. So, um, so I'm just going to go through all of them. Um, the first one is lying, and that's in verse 25. Uh, the negative is that he commands them, hey, put away, having put away all falsehood. And in fact, it's going back and saying, hey, that was part of your old life. You don't live like that now. Speak the truth with your neighbor. For the reason, for we are members of one another. And I love how he goes back to verse 16 and just talking about how the body grows, that it builds itself up in love because we are members of his body. What we see here is our enemy is just filled with lies. Remember the first lie that he ever spoke was founded in a lie. And the enemy said, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And that's not what God said. It was a spin on that. And a lie is a statement that is contrary to truth with the intent to deceive, and that's what the enemy was doing. And that's what led to the first, the fall. And yet when we tell the truth to one another, God works. But when we start telling lies, Satan works. We would like to believe that we would help people by not telling them the truth or uh, that we're hurting their feelings or that we're hurting our unity. But really, our Lord Jesus is controlled by truth. Everything about him is truthful. He is faithful. He is truthful to his promises. And that's why Paul says, out of all that, the very character of who God is, speak truth to his neighbor. Why? Because we are members of it. Um, John Stott kind of brings back the body imagery when he implies that a lie is a stab into the very vitals of the body of Christ. For fellowship, as he writes, is built on trust and trust is built on truth. So falsehood undermines it, fellowship, while truth strengthens it. I don't think we make a point to straight out lie to people, um, but this can include any time we try to soften the truth using flattery, or exploiting the truth using exaggeration, or maybe just just completely dis- doing something that would deceive and make people think your best motives were at play when it really there was some sin there. Whatever it was, where have you been speaking truth? And where have you not been speaking truth? Where have you spun the truth to save your skin or to make yourself look better? And better yet, maybe, again, ask someone in the body if you've been speaking truth well, Or maybe there are certain things that you just haven't been totally honest with them. Maybe there's areas in which you have not been vulnerable and just sharing how you've been doing. And again, that's what we had hoped. We just want to be as authentic with one another. Second one is anger. If you look back in um, chapter 4, verse 26, be angry and do not sin and do not let the sun go down on your anger 
and give no opportunity to the devil. Again, Paul's not saying that being angry is a sin. We know that God was angry, but it's just so hard for us to have a righteous anger because we don't see everything that God sees. But this is this idea of just letting your anger just seethe and boil and get saturated to the point where the sun goes down and it's like two weeks, six weeks, six years later, and you're still overcome with a bitterness and resentment toward that one person who sinned against you or think that sinned against you. And that's where the enemy would love to get a foothold um, because he loves, the enemy loves not to lurk around people who love the truth, but loves to lurk around people who are angry because he's wanting to exploit that situation to his own advantage by leading them to be hateful and spiteful and violent and leading them to unreconciled relationships. And so be very careful with this one because Satan is a serial killer. He hates God and he hates his people. And when he finds that anger in a person, damage to the unity of the church. And so believer, get rid of that anger before it has the chance to do damage into your soul. And is there anything in your heart that the Spirit of God, again, as you're listening to the Spirit of God, let him saturate your heart and ask him, Lord, is there anything, any little bit of just unrest or a twinge of just anger or hostility? Is there anything in my heart that would cause a fire, a bad fire, to ruin God's kingdom and and church? Stealing the negative. Let the thief no longer steal, but the positive, those who steal are called to honest labor. Reason? So that he may share with anyone in need. Well, we know the enemy is a thief. He's a liar. And we also know that he is one who is a robber. And he has no place in the kingdom of God. God in Christ came to give us new life and for us to walk in this great gift. But the thief only comes to steal your identity in Christ, to kill it, and just destroy others with it. He has been hurting, turning people into thieves since time began. And we know that from, starting from the garden all the way to Judas. And yet, isn't it so cool that Jesus, his last, some of his last words was to a thief in paradise and saying today, because of your repentance, you will be with me in paradise. Jesus, even at the very moment, was giving life. He was taking the robbed glory of God and he was giving it the new life away. And that's who we are. And Paul says, guess what? You're gonna do it through your work. He didn't just say, just don't steal, uh, live a good life or take good care of yourselves. He said, let him return to labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may share with anyone in need. And so brother, sister, whether you are in homeschooling, whether you're in full-time work, whether you're in communications, whether you're in marketing, whether you're doing dance, whatever you are in your job, you are called to be an agent of reconciliation. You are pointing to do good and also to give glory to God, to take back what the enemy has stolen and then to, in light of what the motivation that follows, it means to do good to help those in need. 
end. That is so key. God redeems your work, but not only he redeems your work for yourself, he redeems it so that you can do justice and mercy and bring shalom to those who are poor, who are the orphan, those who are fostered, um, those who are loved, unloved, those who are unwanted. Um, God has given you this ministry. Um, and that's uh, been a joy to be able to see um, my kids. I was uh, uh, really taking away the kids to Dollar Tree this past week uh, to really give my wife a break. <laughs> I thought I was doing them a favor. And uh, I was wanting to go get something for some of their projects that they're doing at home. And then they were the ones who reminded me, hey, Dad, didn't we collect $50 to give to care packages for the homeless? And um, I was like, I didn't remember. <laughs> and I didn't know, I didn't have that in my mind, but I was like, oh, we did. <laughs> and God was just kind of using that of just reminding me that, hey, my kids love the poor more than I think I should. I wasn't even thinking about that. And God used that, their work, which is just being children, being kids, but that they were wanting to do that for uh, the homeless. And that was really a blessing to me. And uh, my prayer is that we would always have our hearts to do good and to uh, not just do honest work, but that we would bring people to know Jesus, the greatest love of God. Let's move on to speech. Um, Paul goes on and he says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Paul again goes back to our speech and he talks about this idea of rotten words. And he gives this picture of corrupting, which is the same word for rotting, decaying food. I've just picked up a, a rotten squash that just died in the middle of our garden. It was putrid. It was smushy. It was ants were all over it. And it just smelled. And that's what our words, any corrupting talk, dirty jokes, slander, uh, speaking ill of others is like rotting fruit. And so maybe this is something that you have to ask yourself. Are you contributing to the rotting of this community? Or are you uh, uh, con con contributing to the transformation of this community? Students, one thing is you got to ask yourself is make sure that your words have the power to change, to build up or to tear down. One thing that you learn from James 3 is that your words are powerful. It can set the course of the trajectory of somebody's life or even their day. And so what have you been weighing in your heart? Have you been giving yourself to corrupting talk? But you can be the means of grace for those who hear. Now take a look. We also see this, that there's an added reason for this one. In verse 30, I'm sorry, verse uh, 26 Oh, verse 30, yes. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Normally, he just gives one reason and then he moves on, but I think he wants to land on this one because God is particularly grieved when unwholesome speech by the members bring down other members of the body. And so Paul is doing something here. When he talks about grieving the Holy Spirit, um, he's actually bringing it back old school status to Isaiah 63. Um, and so he is doing something called typology, which he's making um, 
a comparison between two events in the history of Israel, God's covenant people, and he takes that past picture and then he applies it to a present situation pastorally. And so if you ever have a chance, you can take a look at Isaiah 63. But he's looking back in Isaiah 63, which speaks of the key events in Israel's history, namely the Exodus. And Yahweh redeemed Israel. He graciously showed his steadfast love and mercy. He brings them into covenant relationship with himself. He delivers them from Egypt. And then he sends them out and he miraculously saves them out of the Pharaoh's clutches, destroys their armies, and then he leads them into a covenant with himself, the Ten Commandments. And then he leads them into his own personal presence. And later on, eventually, he gives them rest. Some of them didn't wake it. But here in the but in the wilderness, if you remember, that scene was just filled with complaining, complaining, complaining. And in the wilderness, they rebelled and grieved his spirit. Well, when Paul uses this word to grieve the spirit, it's exactly almost word for word for Isaiah 63:10. You can turn there, but it says, But speaking of Israel, they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore, he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. And so this is such a neat thing. It's kind of like when you take something out of your own history and then you use it like, you know, you use it to go and talk to somebody else out of the power of your own experience. It's the same type of deal here, the same kind of weightiness. And just as this Israel, this new community had been redeemed, called out, and led into the presence and then the rest of the Lord, similarly, Paul is saying, hey, you are just like this, this, you are now a new covenant community. You've been redeemed. You've been reconciled to God through Jesus, 2.14 to 2.18, about uh, Jew and Gentile being united as one man, breaking down that hostility, and you become this holy temple, a temple in which the Spirit of God is going to live in you. And this is what Paul commands. He tells them to not grieve the Holy Spirit of God because that same Holy Spirit has sealed this people in redemption. That all things would be summed up in Christ. And Paul's saying anything that shatters that picture just grieves the Spirit who is the ultimate engineer behind it all. Anything that divides the church not only hurts the glory of God, but it hurts him. See, the root of God's concern is not us. It is us displaying his munificence or just what I learned last week or just his love. God wants the church of God to display God. Amen? Can I hear amen? I hear babies crying, which is, uh, I'm sorry. I'll start yelling. I'm getting a little excited. Um, but I just, I just, I'm so amazed by that. God wants to see himself through us. <laughs> it's just amazing who our God is, that he loves us so much that he delights to use us and to display his glory. And yet he cares so much in verse 30, 31, that he doesn't want bitterness or clamor or anger or slander and malice completely be done away with. And he wants that to be replaced by be kind, 
be tenderhearted. Forgive one another just as God in Christ has forgiven you. And I just think that's so powerful. As a forgiven people, we're called to be a forgiving people. That's how you and I live out kingdom community in the power of the Spirit. It's just by this ordinary, everyday, walking with each other, walking with Christ, of confessing and putting our sins of lying and and stealing and thieving and bitterness and clamor and slandering away and putting on the new identity in Christ, the one that he's called us to, and to walk freely in that. And that's who we are. As the worship team comes up and as we kind of think through that, just the wonder of it all, I just would like us to think about two things. Um, Again, unity um, is God's idea. Jesus died for it. He alone will bring unity and also purity in our community. Um, And we're called to just be kind and gracious and forgiving. Would you just long for God and ask God, God, will you just show me, (laughs) show me, God, in a a small way this week? It doesn't have to be like um, lightning, although he can bring that. It doesn't have to be like a pillar of cloud and fire, but he could do that. Totally. Lord can do that. But just ask the Lord for a a glimpse of his showcase of his love and glory. Just ask for that. Show him his burning, ask him to show you his burning passion for purity in the church. Just ask him to show you. And then secondly, I'd just like us to ask, if this is the sense that we can grieve God, um, maybe just explore our lives, explore our hearts, and just confess anything that um, you have grieved the Lord in, whether it's unconfessed sin or any anger that you're walking in, any bitterness or anything that is just causing you to see. The scripture says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. And I ask and beg and plead of you, do that. Take care of that. Bring it before the Lord. We're all sinful. The Lord knows your heart anyway, but he wants to love you through it um, as you confess those sins unto him. And, um, you know, nothing has taught me more in just confessing sin, the very ordinary thing of confessing sin. So as we pause, as we reflect, as we let the Lord, first of all, tell him to give you a burning picture of his passion for purity. And then just ask him, is there anything that is grieving your heart? And then just go to God in confession and trust knowing that he loves you, he's redeemed you. He's called you to put that to death so you can live out this new identity in community. Let's take a few minutes, then I'll close this. I just want to invite the prayer team up as well.